they bring the cameras in and, and they would walk around. You know, now it's commonplace. We see these types of shows all the time, but back then this was, there was nothing like it. And um, the, the, the intro, the tagline of the show was this. It, it would be the celebrity, whoever it was featured that week, they would say this. You think you know, but you have no idea. You think you know what it's like to be me, but you have no idea. Let me, let me give you a sneak peek into the behind the scenes, into what's actually the reality of my life. And, and, and that, that, that's kind of what the gist of the show was. And as I was studying this, because of the nature of chapter 10, it's really Jesus saying, you think you know, in our, in our section, you think you know how to get in. You think you know who the kingdom's for. But you have no idea. You have no idea. He's going to use children in our story to give us a picture of what the kingdom, who the kingdom is for, and how you get in. And we're going to apply the, 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 the techniques that every preacher that steps up onto this pulpit tries to attempt to apply for our text. We're going to try to ascertain through the context of our, of our text What's the main aim? What's the, what's the main emphasis? What's the point of this section, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16? We're going to look at context, and we're going to look at the structure of it a little bit, and we're going to try to figure out what, what, is, what is the big picture. So if you were to leave here today and you were to go visit with somebody for coffee, I guess you can't really do that right now, but maybe you had a little a, a virtual thing on FaceTime, and they were to say, what did you do this morning? You said, oh, I went to my church service, and they said, oh, okay. Well, well you know, what's your, kind of your big takeaway? Hopefully, this would, be, this would be what that is, the main aim. How do we get into the kingdom? Who is it for? And what, is the, what does citizenship entail? So point one, the disciples in our story thought they knew who the kingdom was for. They thought they knew who it was for, but they had no idea. Let's jump into our text. Starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So presumably we have parents bringing little children to Jesus. He's probably out somewhere teaching. They're bringing little children to Jesus. Thinking they're doing something that they should do, something appropriate stopping them from bringing, bringing the children to Jesus. They are rebuking children to the people. You see, the disciples thought the kingdom was for a certain type of person, and babies were not in that category. You've got to understand it in the context, and this word context is so important. We think now babies are, are a cherished thing. We have a couple in our room right now, and we think about how we uh, adore babies. We do baby gender reveal parties, and we do baby showers, and we love babies, and baby room for kids is the one that gets the most volunteers, and, and all these things. But, but back then, babies were viewed in a more utilitarian um, point of view that they, what could they provide for the family, and even so much so that in the Roman age, the father of the family could decide if he wanted to terminate the baby's life. If it wasn't the right gender or it didn't come out the way that uh, he thought it, it should, he had the right to do so. In the Roman world, babies were not how we view babies. In the Roman world, babies were a symbol of the least important members of their society. 
of the same rank as a slave. And so the disciples, assuming that the kingdom of God was like the kingdoms of our world, they see the babies come, and they think the right thing to do is to not trouble Jesus with the presence of the babies, with the concerns of these unimportant people in their society, and they block them from coming to him. They block the babies from coming. There are so many places in this world, so many ways that this story applies, especially in our time and age. So many places where we cannot go, where I cannot go. I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I'm not, I'm not gifted enough. I'm not talented enough. I don't have enough money. There are so many ways that we categorize and structure society where there's these levels of status of the important ones and the unimportant ones and the, the rich and the powerful and the weak and the oppressed and the, and the migrant and the widow and the ones who have privilege and the ones who don't. And, and all these different ways that we categorize people in our world. This is, these are the paradigms of a fallen world. Where there's the haves and the have-nots. Where there's people that we say, that person's important. Why? Because of X, Y, Z. And that person over there is not important. Why? Because they don't have this or they don't have that. Or they look a certain way or they act a certain way. For the disciples, that was the, that was the way of things. That's just how things are. That's how kingdoms work. And so in their minds, they were doing what they thought was the right thing to do. But we're going to find out that the kingdom of God is not like that. That there is finally a kingdom that's going to be introduced into the world that is nothing to do with the kingdoms of men. The fallen ways that we have established our kingdoms here on earth. It goes on, verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He sees the disciples preventing the children from coming, and he is indignant. Mark uses the word indignant. This story is found in other gospels, and that word is excluded. Mark has a way of not um, glossing over the attributes and the behaviors and the intensity of Jesus. And he says, he includes, he was indignant at what he saw. He said, let the children come. Do not hinder them. The disciples thought they knew who the kingdom was for. Our world thinks it knows who's important and who's not important. And Jesus in our story is trying to communicate to us that you think you know, but you have no idea. You have no idea. Jesus has a different way of looking at things. He's instituting a different type of kingdom. A kingdom that this world knows nothing about. And a kingdom that this world yearns to, 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 to have become a reality. But, but we've never seen a picture of it. We've never seen a kingdom that could pull it off. Where there wasn't these notions of important and unimportant status and hierarchies. Jesus had a different idea for a kingdom. And status was not a factor in that place. He says, let them come. He's gently admonishing the disciples to 
abandon their notions of who's important and who's not important. He's telling them, I have something new for you. I'm not like that. The children, in one sense, in our story, represent those in our world without status. Those in our world, the, you got the one percenters and you got the 99. It, it represents the ones that, that are not the privileged ones in their given societies, the ones that are on the low rung of society. It represents the ones that we think are not important. And here Jesus is saying, I want you to reframe that. I want you to change that because my kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is one without status, without hierarchy. We'll see the disciples later on. They're, they're, they're thinking in terms of hierarchy and status. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. No, that's not how my kingdom is. He goes on to 14b, the second part of verse 14. Let the children come. Do not hinder them. Why? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. This, this, this must have been confounding to the disciples. What? You mean children? Like, what? What, what could he be talking about? That the children represent the ones who, they, they, these are the ones that the kingdom belongs to. Is he, is he talking about the innocence of a child? That we, we, we have these notions, these romantic notions that children are innocent, inherently innocent. But in the scriptures, David tells us that he was sinful from birth. So, so what, what is it that would cause Jesus to point to children as the representation of those who the kingdom belongs to. What is it about children? And we've got some children here in, in the room today. What is it about them? I would, I would say, go and look. We've got the Harrison twins over there. We've got the Five House kids over there hanging out on the floor. What is it about children that Jesus would, would use them as an object lesson for us in our text? They come as they are. Small Powerless, no credit, no clout, no claims. Whatever a child receives, the child receives by virtue of grace and grace alone. There is no way that they can fulfill their own needs. They must be provided for. They have empty hands. It's a picture of the ones who come with empty hands. They have nothing to offer. They have nothing that they can achieve for themselves. There's nothing that they can bring to the table. They're empty-handed by their very nature, and he connects children to the ones who the kingdom belongs to, to the ones who the kingdom is for. You know, I have, uh, I have two kids, those of you who know my family, and uh, you know, being a father, it gives you perspective, especially in, in, in times like this when, when we're dealing with these dynamics of children and, and, and stuff. And, I was uh, talking with my wife the other day. We were, we were sitting down. We are taking a break. We set the kids over to the TV, taking a break. Um, and uh, it's one of those moments. <clears throat> and um, so we're taking a break. We're, ha we're having our time, right, And in the other room. And uh, the kids are watching something. I don't know. I, I'm usually pretty good at vetting what they watch. But they're watching something. And they know how to do Amazon and everything. So they go, they want to, they're on it. 
And I don't know, 15 minutes later, um, my boy comes running in. And he's got like, he's starting to get like tears and starting to form in his eyes. I'm like, oh no, what happened? He's like, dad, he's like, it's too scary. Whatever he was watching was, was too scary. And it, it turns out it was about an animal who was in peril. And, and he, my, my boy didn't know if it was going to turn out okay. And, and that made him feel very scared and, and very uncertain about things. And he, he, was, he was being confronted with a story that, that it, it, he didn't know if it was going to turn out to have a happy ending and all these things. And so what does he do? He runs to dad. Why? Why does he run to dad? Where else is he going to go? He's a child. He's a child. He goes to the source of the person and persons and me and my wife of his security, of his comfort. He runs to us. He exhibits a childlike reaction to things that are out of his control, that are pressing in against him and making him feel scared. He comes. Open hands and says, Dad, it's too scary expecting me to have an answer, expecting me to be able to fill some void, expecting me to be able to do something to fix the situation. He's a child. He's acting childlike. He's running to his source of security. My daughter, man, she's got like a, a sixth sense when it comes to my proximity <laughs> when we're at the house. And she, she could be upstairs doing her thing, she could be playing with her She's got some snails now we gave her for Christmas. She's taking care of us. It doesn't matter. She could be doing any number of things. But if she hears the door open, I mean, you know, we got, it's not like it's creaking. If she hears even the door open, the door handle, her radar is, is pops up. She's like, she's like, Dad, where are you going? <laughs> She'll say it from upstairs. You know, I'll be going out to go take the trash out or something. Dad, where are you going? What, what is it? What's there? What, what, what's going on with her? She wants to know my proximity, my wife's proximity. Because if we're there in the house, everything's going to be okay for her. In her little world, man, as long as dad's there, as long as mom's there, what could hurt me? What could assail me? Nothing. But the moment that the prospects of us leaving, dad, where are you going? She wants to know. I get to the point now, I just tell her, um, um, boo, I'm, I'm heading out to go take the trash out. Okay, Dad. There's a, there's a sense in which she's acting childlike. There's a real sense in which she's expressing her dependency in authentic and real ways. Without Dad, without Mom in her life, without her relying upon the benevolence and the bounty of another, in this fallen world, exposed to all manner of sin and, and calamity, she would be undone, and she recognizes that. And she looks to her dad, and she looks to her mom, and she looks to others in her life as sources of security, as sources of comfort. She feels alone, and she cries out. My boy feels scared, and he runs to death. They feel powerless, and they cling to the strength of another. They feel scared, and they run to the source of security. This is childlike behavior. This is what Jesus is pointing to when he says the kingdom of heaven is for such as these. In all of these ways, children are operating in light of the truth of their reality. That without their parents, they're, they're not going to be able to survive in this world. 
They have a deep understanding of their dependency. They couldn't articulate it. My daughter couldn't tell me why she feels that way, or, or my boy couldn't tell me why he feels scared in those moments, but they're expressing a true reality about themselves. They are dependent, and they have no qualms of expressing and communicating that dependency by their actions. And they come, and they run, and they call out. Now what happens with us as adults? Our culture says it's, at some point you've got to grow up and move out of your parents' house. You got to go get a job, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. You got to be respectable. We operate as adults in a real sense with a veneer of self sufficiency. This veneer of self sufficiency, this mirage, if you will, allows us to operate in our cultures in a respectable manner. We desire to be seen as competent, respectable. So we operate with a veneer of self-sufficiency. But the crazy thing is, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves and if we're doing the work of analyzing our culture and trying to see the ins and outs of, of why people are the way they are and why do our, our loved ones and our friends who don't know Jesus act in certain ways and why don't they do this and why don't they do that, if we really analyze these things, we'll see that the pride of self-sufficiency, the tire, if you will, of our pride has a leak in it. It has many, many leaks that betray the lie as adults that we are self-sufficient. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was like, what ways do our behaviors and our actions betray that we actually aren't self-sufficient? That we actually are not any different than my boy and my girl? That we are also still scared even though 30 years later? We're still insecure, even though we're adults. We're still, we still exhibit these same needs and desires that my children express, yet we hide those things behind respectability. What are some evidences that we have a leak in that tire? And one thing that I, I, I came to my mind as I was thinking about this this week, and God gave it to me. Why is it that we love, we resonate so deeply with music about brokenness? Or stories where we have somebody who fails, and then they're like redeemed, and there's some triumph. What is it about the affinity that we have with those stories that betrays this notion that we are actually self-sufficient? Why? I, I was thinking of this song that, um, you know, it was kind of like the anthem of my generation, in a way. My generation, the music genre that sprouted up and became very popular was called emo. Is emo still around? I don't even know. Sean, is emo, is emo still a thing? Well, it, it, has, it has endured, at least for those of my generation. This song is by Radiohead, and the, the title of the song is Creep, and perhaps some of you have, have, have heard this song before. I went on YouTube uh, the other day to look at it, to check it out, and they have the official music video on YouTube. This was 1993 when it came out, and it's been viewed a half a billion times. A half a billion times. So there's still a lot of people that are resonating with it. And the song, I, I feel like it's like an anthem for my generation because my generation was all about, you know what? To the wind with these notions that our parents gave us that we're supposed to be like this and you have to be respectable and you have to have a, a career for 30 years and you have to do all these things. You have to, no, no, we want to be authentic. We want to be real. We want to like express just how broken we really are. 
just how needy we really are. That was kind of like the, the gist of the genre. We're just going to be depressed together. So, like, like, I know you're really broken, and I know you have all kinds of leaks, and I know you do too, and so do I. So let's take to the wind with, like, pretending like we don't, and let's just, like, grovel in our brokenness together. And let's just be depressed. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I was like, man, I was, I, was, my, I was hearkening back to this time, and I love that stuff. And the song, Creep, it, it, it's this song, it's like the guy's trying to find salvation in a girl. Okay, that's the, that's the point of the song. There's this girl, he just doesn't have the courage to, like, engage with her while she's there. And so now he's, like, reminiscing that he, like, he had a chance, but he couldn't even look her in the 